Let's read our text together. This isn't pointing out these things to the brethren. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished upon the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables that fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for body di- bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of this present life and also the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this that we labor and strive because we have our hope fixed upon the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of the believers. See, First Timothy here, verses 6 through 16 in chapter 4 here, it, it focuses on being a, a godly minister. Well, again, Paul is pointing this, uh, pointing out to Timothy how he is to function, but it's the things for you and I to function. These are the things that he is to teach it's a a model for us as paul is timothy is to be a mentor to us now godliness is not a a piety that uh that we generally think of uh, upturned eyes and and folded hands that we so often see like outward form of godliness but they deny the power thereof godliness is much more than that it means it's displaying Godlike character in all situations. That means when you're driving down the road and somebody stops and all the groceries fly around and things break in the car and, and you're calm. Peaceful. In fact, that person that stopped in the front is angry at you. They're the ones that stopped and, and they're yelling, they're cussing, they're carrying on and, and you can smile for them and you can pray for them. Or maybe something's happened in your family. Your kids have made a, a decision that you don't agree with. And, and how we react is so extremely important. God-likeness. That's what we're to be. God-like character. And it's this, it's a, it's a lifestyle, the way that you and I are, are to live. And it's, it flows, this godliness flows out of real worship. And worship, when I'm talking about worship, is not just singing up here, but it's literally obedience that we go through this life in the presence of God, that awareness of God, that amazement of who God is, that we're so in love with God that we naturally do those things that are right and honoring to God, and we want to be like him. I told the story of Gail Irwin years ago, and those that know Gail, he, he's kind of a roly-poly more than me, and he has suspenders, and, and when he teaches, he's up here, he's kind of like a country boy, and he's pulling his suspenders out like this and this, and you know, he's very visual. And one day he was kind of hamming around, and he looks on the side, and his son is doing that same thing. He's watching Dad, trying to put it in and, and do all these different things. And likewise, we should be like our Father, like Jesus Christ. Watching, amazed at Him. Wanting to handle the situations as as He would handle those situations. You know, it's possible in our life, and the world says, no, it's not. But yet, when we look through the Bible, we see many examples of the first one I want to call your attention to is in Genesis Genesis 5:24 look on the screen and it says Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him Enoch walked with God day in and day out so aware of his presence that one day God called him Enoch you're closer to my house than yours come to be with me There's going to be a day that he's going to call each of us home to be with him. The question really boils down to this. Will you hear those words, good and faithful servant, or will you cringe? I remember when I was a kid, uh, I was left in the house. I had to watch things. My dad was gone, and there were times I would cringe. I was getting in, doing things I shouldn't do. 
I was very uncomfortable, kind of sheepish when my dad come home. And sometimes there was a time that I would go and greet him at the door. And just like that, it's going to be when the Lord calls us home. Well, there's another example I want to call your attention to. It's in Genesis 6, verse 9. Notice it says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. See, a person who is walking with God is walking in godliness or God-likeness. They're following, mimicking and doing the things he would do. And notice it's a righteous man, not a perfect man. None of us are perfect. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But he was righteous because he wanted to do the right thing. And I believe that's true of all of us here. We want to do the right thing, but sometimes we just, we kind of blow it. Would you agree with that sometimes? Our intent is to do that right thing, and, and yet it doesn't come out the way that we intend. Well, look with me in Job 1. It says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, That man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So we learn that, again, that godliness is turning away from evil, is turning to God and following God with all of our heart. And it goes on in the story of Job, if you know it, it's very interesting because God was bragging about Job. Have you seen my righteous man, Job? And boy, all the problems started. How would you like God to say, have you seen my righteous man, Mike? Whoa, things get intense, don't they? But that's the greatest honor. When God looks at us and sees his righteousness. But this godliness that we're going to talk about, we're going to see, is imputed by Christ Jesus. It's not something that you accomplish on your own efforts. It's not by doing a bunch of good works. It's not by putting your hands together, folded and looking up and, and acting holy. It's something that God does in the life of a person who surrenders his life to him. Well, there's some New Testament examples of godliness, too. Look with me in Luke 2, 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. See, he was looking, again, for that time that the Messiah would come, the the coming of the Lord. And it, it said the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I think there are many today that are looking for the coming of the Lord. They're occupying, they're being faithful, they want to be like God, but at the same time, they're looking for his return. That alone is a purifying thought the scripture makes clear. In 1 John chapter 3, in those first three verses, that's the message of it. That's a purifying thought, looking for his coming. Again, in Luke 2, 37, it says, Then the widow, the age of 84, she was referring here, at least to Anna, who was left in the temple, serving night and day, fasting and prayers. Now, in this case, this woman had had given herself. She's a widow. Her husband had died. But she had lived all the days of her life for the Lord. Not everyone is called just to be in that situation but we are called to live for the lord not necessarily in that gift of singleness that she had to have to be in that situation but here's the key we looked at it in first timothy three sixteen. notice what it says by common confession this is where we finished in chapter three great is the mystery of godliness And he was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. This is amazement. Now remember when David, and King David wanted to build the house for the Lord. The Lord says, no, you can't build, there's blood on your hands. And then God said to him, I will build you a dynasty. And it's very interesting in the Hebrew, there's this this pause in the scripture. You don't see it in the scripture, but in the Hebrew writing, it's indicated that there's this long pause that David sit there in awe. He was speechless. He was amazed. He was in awe. He was enthroned. All he could do is, is see that his blood upon his hands... 
He knew his sinfulness, and, and he wanted to honor God. And God says, I'm going to honor you. And what i like you to understand, it's this heart that David had. While David was a sinner, saved by grace too, through faith. But it's this amazement that will produce this godliness, will produce this surrender in your life. This amazement in the, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, it talks about the church of Ephesus. They had left their first love relationship. Ladies, you remember when you first got married, you, that amazement of your husband, he could do no wrong. In fact, you thought he was the most perfect person in the world until you married him. He left his underwear rolled up in the corner, just kicked everything off for you just to, to go and pick it up after him. And the list goes on. Something happens, you lost that first love. You realized he was a real person. But when we come to God, he is perfect. He's perfect in all of his ways. His love is perfect. His mercies are new every morning. He saved you while you were in your worst. He snatched you out of the fire. There's a, a picture of an Indian that he was asked to give a, a testimony of, of what God did in his life. And I think it really gives the same picture that we need to, to understand. And, and so this Indian, he, he gathers up a bunch of dry leaves and he piles these leaves up kind of high and he finds this little worm and he lays it right on top of those leaves and he lights these dry leaves on fire and it's going up and it's burning and inflaming and smoke. And he reaches in that fire and he lifts that little worm out and he holds it close to his heart. He said, that's what God did to me. And if you realize that's what God has done for you, there's amazement. There's this mystery of godliness when you look at him, and every time you, you see something about it, it, it's expanding more and more. He's more infinite, more great, more wonderful, more merciful, more gracious. And you and I can stand before him. You and I can boldly go to the throne of grace and receive mercy when we need it. That means like when you sinned against somebody, you've wronged somebody, you have a hard time going against them because you don't know how they're going to react. I'm going to tell you, when you come to God, you can boldly come to that throne of grace when you need mercy. And he has open arms. That if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He wants nothing to be between you and him. He wants this perfect, intimate relationship with you. And when a person captures that, when they understand that in their life, they begin to move down that path of godliness, walking closer and closer and closer with the Lord. Because they're in love. In that first love, and they never lose it. But the person that loses it is the one that begins to walk in the way of the flesh. He's no longer walking in the spirit. He chooses to, to separate himself from God instead of unto God. See, this mystery of godliness makes godliness possible in every one of our lives. Will we reach perfection? No. Not until we're in eternity. But it's the motivation. It's the desire to be like him. Because Jesus is that substance. He is that essence of all godliness. And when you've been born again, his spirit's indwelling you. His spirit is convicting you and empowering you and changing you and transforming you from the inside out. That person that's amazed wants to be in his presence, wants to, to be around him, is looking for him in every picture, every scene, as they walk through this life with awareness he is there and he's concerned about everything in your life. Everything. Nothing is insignificant. You are the apple 
of his eye. See, this ascended Lord, the one who is caught up to be with the Father, imparts his godliness to those that open their arms in response to him. He initiates, and all we do is respond to him. See, this godliness is not external. It's something that is internal. It's the Holy Spirit living in you and me, empowering us to live a life, a Christ-like life. To honor Him, to glorify Him. Look with me in 2 Timothy 3.5. It says, and, and this is kind of true because some are seen this way, that is, holding this form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. You've seen them. They look holy. They dress holy. They put on holy scent. But inside they're like dead man's bones, the scripture will describe. They have another agenda. In fact, in 2 Peter 1.3, notice what it says. In contrast, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. See, when we see him, when we have this awe of him, we're overwhelmed by him, we simply act in obedience. When you respect Remember when you were a kid, a child, you respected, you loved your mom, you wanted to honor them, you wanted to honor your father. And then we grew up and we wanted to do it our own way. And we paid the consequences for those choices. See, it's acting in obedience to the very word of God that, that produces this godliness. And Jesus only did the things he saw the father do. And that's something that as we walk in godliness, we're looking to check in daily, regularly, routinely to know what the Lord's will is. See, it's interesting as we, we come because, again, Paul's outraged at what's going on, the teaching. He had talked earlier about the, the doctrine of demons we looked at last week and, and the ridiculous things that they were getting caught up in. And to Paul, it was blasphemy. Because Paul saw the work of the cross as perfect. It was everything that you needed for life and godliness. He has done it. It's paid. Now walk in it. Walk in his power. You're victorious already. You're, you're not fighting for victory, but you're already victorious. Now you take every thought captive and you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying it is possible to walk in godliness, not perfection, because we still have this, this fragile body, this fallen body in a fallen world. But all things work for the good. For those who love the Lord and call according to his purpose. So he teaches us through these circumstances. But Paul, as he, he sees their teaching, these false teachers, as if it's a slap in the face of Jesus, you're not enough. Likewise, those, those that teach that you have to work, you have to be good. You, you, you have to do this on your own power. Let me tell you, Encourage you. you. You can't do it on your own power. It's impossible. You need the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it was necessary to go away, that he would leave this comforter who would guide you in all truth, will lead you in that straight and narrow path. Jesus is enough. So Paul's denouncing this foolish asceticism that you've got to deny your flesh to get close to God. You've got to keep this. You've got to do that. You simply come to Jesus and say, Jesus, here I am. Have your way in my heart. There's a book I was mentioning this week. That's, it's, it's a good book. It's about a problem with the tongue. I need to read it again. 
Maybe some of the rest of you need to read it again too. But it says, words that hurt, words that heal. A lady's speaking at a conference and she says, Lord, I'll go anywhere, anytime you want. Do anything you want. And she goes down this path. Things begin to crumble around her. Disasters begin to occur. And she simply says, Lord, I didn't mean this. See, that's how we are. We only give part of ourselves. Jesus wants all of you. This is the only way that you will find a peace that passeth all understanding is when you give yourselves completely. When you decide to put your hand to the plow and not turn back. When you realize that you're a new creature in Christ, old things are passed away, don't dig up the past. Don't bring it back. It doesn't matter. Realize who you are in Christ and what he's done for you and what he's wanting to do in you. That's what's essential. When you go back to the past, you're digging up the past, you're bringing up your dirty laundry, you're bringing out the baggage, it's only going to bog you down. It's going to prevent you from walking in godliness, in holiness, in purity, in walking with Christ. And you end up walking in the flesh whether you realize it or not. A diet of godliness. It begins by rejecting bad doctrine or what sometimes some people call it stinking thinking they add it to the the church they manipulate and twist the scripture and it's important to understand you got to push these things away if there's someone who is a false teacher or has some kind of false teaching on a regular basis you need to put it away i don't care how charismatic how wonderful they are don't Listen to them, because you will be tainted, you'll be affected, it will cause you to focus on those wrong things. So that's what his focus is. And verse 6, it says, and pointing out these things to the brethren. Now, don't notice that word, these things. That actually is one word in the Greek, and it's important. It's tata. You remember tata, right? We all understand it, because when we go to the book of Revelation, it's metatata. Metatata means after and then Tata, after these things. Speaking of a chronological order, but here Tata just means after these things, or in this case, these things. What things? It goes back to everything that Paul has been teaching about these false teachers, these false doctrine, the things that will teach you you've got to do this, then you can be godly. If you just keep a certain day. You just don't eat this kind of meat or this kind of thing. Or you only go every night to church, some churches teach. Or you only wear your best clothes. That doesn't mean throw out your white shirts and ties, if you have them. But, but they have these rules and regulations. They were laying upon the people, if you do these things, then God will accept you. Jesus says, come just as you are. The world says, when I clean up my act, when I get good, I'll come meet with Jesus. They bought in to the lies of this world. First, Timothy has to point out, point out to those that he's feeding Hey, he has to point out the bad. This will choke you up. This will clog your spiritual arteries. You've got to push it aside. Don't go there. The actual Greek language is very strong. Don't go there. You know how dad has raised his voice. It's like that. It's very strong. Now, Timothy's responsible, first of all, to know these things. Timothy, you need to know them before you can point them back. You need to understand them. Timothy can only go as far as he's gone himself. 
Paul, his spiritual father, keeps pouring into him, keep raising him up, keep preparing him for the next thing that he's going to, to go through. One of the ways that he's going to learn is in 1 Timothy 4.13. We'll see this next week. Until I come, give attention, notice, to public reading of the Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. See, this is what is to happen when, when we congregate together. What? Public reading of the Word, that the Scripture needs to be read. People need to hear the Word of God. And it's important and the exhortation to do what the scripture says exhort them exhort them unto godliness to righteousness and purity unto good works prepared before the foundation of the world not for salvation but God has prepared good works for you to do this is 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 not going to find favor whether you do them or not but this is where you find the blessing the joy doing these things, recognizing you've been made for this very purpose. And simply teaching the Word. Teaching people how to understand the Word. Teaching people to be Bereans, to examine the Scripture. To look at it. That's why we put the Scripture up. That's why we encourage you to be in the Word. And not only here, but to do it during the week. If you're listening to someone on the radio, listen to it. See if it's so when you're reading it, and it's important to understand. You examine it and see if it's so. Well, Timothy, the faithful minister of the gospel, has this responsibility to point it out, to lay it before the people, not only just the minister, but, but you as a, as a mom, a dad, a grandpa, a, a grandma, because you still have influence upon those younger kids to tell them about Jesus, what God has done in your life and what he wants to do in their lives. To encourage them and exhort them in this faithfulness. And that includes, again, these negative things, negative uh, doctrines and answers. Point out, this is not of God. This is false teaching. And there are teachers that are godly men, let's say, but they're in error on their teaching. Just when somebody teaches something wrong doesn't mean everyone is a false teacher. Because again, no one is perfect. But every teacher should remain teachable. That means me, and that means you. Until the Lord takes us home that we're always to remain teachable. And the fact is, if I don't do this to you, to those that I come in touch, those that I have influence and you don't do, it means we're going to be accountable for this. Because we all have a ministry. Some ministries are maybe congregational and some are smaller settings. Some of the influence may be in a, in a Bible study at work or in a neighborhood study or in friends, in a discipleship group. You just can't let a person, watch a person just go the wrong way without telling them, where's the love? Certainly you would tell your kids, this is wrong if you knew it hurt them. How much more spiritually? Because that will affect them for eternity. Paul's saying, in a sense, you need to reject this spiritual junk food is what he's saying. Because what's important is it's essential to have healthy, happy sheep. You must have good doctrine. One of the things with Calvary was years ago, it says a healthy, happy sheep know how to evangelize. If you're healthy and happy in Christ and recognize who you are and you're amazed in him, you will want to tell everyone. We don't talk about tithing at all. Healthy, happy sheep know how to give. Whether it's giving here or it's giving to a mission or giving to someone in need, they, they naturally do it. Because they learn the very heart of God. The Spirit of God leads them and guides them. But see, the teaching of these false teachers, it was godless. It was radical. It was opposite of what Paul was teaching. And certainly it was opposite of the cross. Because again, what Christ did, their teaching, was not enough. You've got to add 
to it. You've got to do this. Well, Paul sarcastically calls it old wives' tales. Myths, fables, fictional, falsehoods. Sadly, people do believe almost anything. You ever notice that? Gullible. I'm not saying you're gullible, but I've been gullible. I've bought into lies. The world is full of lies. I think every one of us in some capacity. Especially when you're younger, sometimes you're, you don't have that experience, that discernment. That's why it's so important to be Bereans, to examine and, and see if things are so. But all of us have been affected, again, by um, old wives' tales. For the older ones, you remember, if you would sit too close to the TV, you'd go blind. You remember that. Or if you eat chocolate, you get pimples on your face. These things have never, ever been proven. But they're passed from generation to generation. But more than that, they use them to manipulate and control people. That's what false teachers do. They control, they manipulate people. Our desire is to simply bring you to the Word of God, to Jesus Christ, and teach you how to study the Word, to look and pay attention to the context of the passage. What is the author's intent? Well, there's many, even old wives' tales in the church as well. One of the biggest ones I still hear today, just come to Jesus and you won't have a problem in the world. Is that true? No, your problems really begin because the enemy wants to come against you. But you are victorious in Christ. And you don't need to really submit to the devil. Some go around and and they go into a house and maybe something is evil in the house. And so they start throwing salt around the house. Now in the secular world, if you throw salt or or salt falls someplace, they're saying, well, something bad's going to happen to you. But in the church... Again, they're throwing around to cleanse everything. They miss the whole context of the book. The Bible doesn't teach this, and yet it's an old wives' tale. I went to a house one time, and TV was going on in the middle of the night. All kinds of weird things were happening, so I called the people. I said, call an electrician. Check out all the practical things, and then we'll come and pray. I'm there with someone, and they're throwing salt all over the house like it's going to chase away the evil. Superstitions, mystical, it's all in the church, old wives' tales. Instead of just being dependent upon Christ. In the end, this house, what we realized was happening, there were some things stored in the house from the previous person, and there was pornography and all kinds of things. And when we got all the pornography and all the evil out of the house, everything stopped. We prayed. We did the practical. We committed to God. Now the other one's throwing salt all over the house and thinking that's going to do good. The Bible's very clear. Again, in James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. These people weren't Again, encouraging Satan. They were in the Word, but they're aware there's a spiritual battle going on. And that's something that the church is often naive of, sadly. See, these things are in the primitive history of the Old Testament, especially the foolish legends that have passed on, genealogies with all kinds of symbolism, sugar-coated demon-inspired asceticism. If you just don't do this and deny yourself as monks would go and lock themselves in a, in a castle and think they're not going to sin when they're away from the world. No, sin reaches right into their hearts because it's there. The list goes on. Paul simply says, reject the rubbish. Put it out in the trash. Let it be hauled away. Don't listen to it. Turn the TV off. Turn the radio off. Take the commentaries that are, you know, name it, claim it commentaries, and throw it away. 
Throw it in the rubbish. Don't give it to somebody else. How much poison do you want? Do you want to give poison to your neighbor? Get rid of it. Well, again, spiritually speaking, we need to dine on good food. We all like to eat, don't we? We need to spiritually dine on sound biblical doctrine. What do you need? The Word of God. The timeless Word of God. It, it is applicable for today. It's not corrupt. It is not evil. It tells you what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. Scripture is clear when you know the truth. The truth will set you, you may answer, free. Don't you want to be free? It frees you from the bondage of this world, from the evil one. This is the truth. The truth is the word of God. So Paul's encouraged and point out these things to, to the brethren. In fact, you'll be a good minister if you do this. Well, this involves, as I mentioned, being a Berean, but it goes on in, in that same verse, constantly nourished upon the words of faith and sound doctrine which you've been following. Timothy, you need to feed yourself. You need to keep growing. You need to keep learning. You need to keep drawing closer, press into the Lord. And it needs to be sound faith that you can walk out. You see it's been tested, it's proved, and it goes on this sound doctrine which you've been following. And it's interesting because Timothy was already doing this, but you need to continue to grow. And that's true in your life. You may be saved, but you still need to continue to grow. Because of the things, the influences of this life, this world is getting more wicked and more evil. Now that word, again, nourish, is the idea is to train up, to educate, to nurture. This is important to understand. In fact, let me read Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of the milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained and discern good from evil. One of the most intimidating things when I became a pastor is there were people around me who had been Christians for 30 years, and I'd only been a Christian two years, and I kept saying, Lord, why me? Why me? First, there's always a calling that God puts us in different positions. But sometimes, just because a person has been a Christian a long time, doesn't mean they've ever grown. It doesn't mean they've ever matured. It doesn't mean that they've ever learned to be, become a Berean. They haven't learned how to handle the Word of God. God wants us all to be able to rightly divide this Word of truth, to handle it, to be able to have a timely word for a person in a time of need. That's what He has for you and me. Now, this idea of sound doctrine means right, it's noble, it's proper, it's good, it's pleasing. And he says, you've already been following this. And this is important to understand. Notice again in 2 Timothy 3.10. It says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, and faith, and patience, and love, and perseverance. But that isn't where it started. That's what he was doing. He's following Paul. But it started with his grandmother and his mother. Ladies, I know it's Father's Day, but you can have the greatest influence upon your children's future by simply opening the Word and speaking the truth and love to your kids and guiding them in that truth. Fathers, you need to, too. When you correct your kids, you need to be able to sit down and correct them with the Word of God even if they rebel against it at this point. That's important to understand. It starts with me. It starts with you. 
is God first in your life? That's what they need to see that as a grandfather, your grandkids, if you want to have influence, do they see that God is number one in your life? Or likewise, if we stop exercising the spiritual man, this is important to understand, the world will notice. Well, what do you mean? There was a violinist once. He was asked how many hours a day he practiced, and the answer was a considerable number of hours. He was then asked, what would happen if you stopped practicing? He says, if I do not practice one day, he said, I know it. And if I do not practice two days, the conductor knows it. And if I do not practice for three days, everybody knows it. So when you read this thought, this, this, if we stop exercising spiritual men, we stop growing, everyone around us will know. Something's happening in our life. And what is that? Something's wrong in the relationship. They've lost that amazement. Because if he's number one, you're going to put that before anything else. You will get up early. You will do whatever it is to clear your schedule to spend time with him. You've also lost that amazement. You've left that first love relationship as a scripture because other things and other people are more important. And when a person begins to go down that track, you see it reflected in the fact that they're no longer walking in godliness. There's a man that I've met in Israel, actually on a plane going back and forth and and talking. He lives in Chicago, and what he does is he buys, again, Jewish, um, in, in, in Hebrew, I should say, the New Testaments, in some cases even the Old Testaments and the New Testaments, and he takes them to Israel and he gives them away and he shares. He has no organization to sponsor him. He just grows. He's not Jewish. He's just read the Scripture, continues to read the Scripture, and he sees that, the, again, ministry is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And he literally takes it that way And he spends his life living for Christ and living to take the gospel to the Jewish people and yet shares with anyone who will listen. Why do we need to study so much? Well, again, for Timothy, notice what it says, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, great patience and instruction. You never know when you're going to have to open the Word. You never know when, when someone is going to ask you for a reason, for the hope that lies within. Why do you go to church? Oh, I get brownie points. No. Now, first, for a pastor, that's true, but that's true for you. If you have kids especially, your kids will ask you some of the most interesting questions. Kids will stump me more than adults will ever stump me. And they're so cool the way they ask. Well, look at verses 7 through 10 in our text. Again, the the need to exercise this godliness is seen there in verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, that's referring back again to the beginning of of chapter 4. It's an imperative. It's really a command. It's reject, avoid such foolishness, rubbish. Our priority should be always the Word of God. Whenever you hear someone teaching, someone talking, how does it line up with the Word of God? There are people that do not know that if they die today, they're going to go to heaven, but they go to church week after week after week. You've got the Word of God. You've got to hide it in your heart that you would share with them, to teach them. Now, we've been talking about apostasy as we went through. Apostasy is falling away from the faith. That's what the false teachers are trying to lead the people away. Now, they have this form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Outwardly, they look righteous. Inside, they have another agenda. But for a person to avoid apostasy, whether it's listening to these false teachers or even if you're just not even following false teachers, is the best defense is offense. Get in the Word of God and know the Word of God. 
You do not need to study what's false. You need to know the truth. And when you know the truth, you'll recognize what is false. You don't need to study cults. You need to know the truth. And when something comes up, you're going to know it's not right. So the best defense against error is, is pressing on, pressing into Jesus, growing in the maturity, growing in that love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, discipline yourself in the purpose of godliness. Well, the true godliness is not a matter of myths and beliefs and it's some higher knowledge like Gnosticism. It just simply requires obedience, practical application, and self-discipline. That means we just have to sit under Jesus, put ourselves under him. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what does this say? And, and ask him. Now, that word, it's interesting there in verse 7, discipline, gnazo, gnazo. And, and the word comes from the Greeks. And, and, and again, it means to exercise naked or to train. Now, that doesn't mean at first, when this first was established, that they were completely naked. No, they had a, like a, a loin skin that was covering them, and they would run. But how does that apply? This is important to understand. It means they were removing every hindrance. So when he uses this word, we have to get rid of those hindrances of being faithful to God and getting in the word. Now, the word here is where we actually get our word gymnasium from. That's interesting. We've all been in a gym. How many has been in a gym? Come on. That was kind of sarcastic. Forgive me, okay? But a gym, when you go into a gym, especially you go in the locker room, you know what I mean? It has that smell of a gym. It's sweat. It's hard work. And our Bible study should be the same way. It needs, there needs to be this discipline that we're getting in the Word, and it is work. To know the truth, the truth will set you free. It requires exercise. It, it requires training. And this is the word, by the time Christ comes 300 years later, you know, at this period of time, it just means exercise at that point. Now, I'm going to stop here and bring in one word real quick. Hellenism. That means the Greek influence. I'm giving you Greek influence right now because the, the Bible was written in Greek. And their thinking has affected us. We have to understand what their thinking is. And what it meant at that time, and you're going to recognize there's good and bad and all that. Well, the practical part is we need to train ourselves. We need to discipline ourselves to be in the Word of God, to pray over the Word of God, to ask God. And it's kind of like, it's, it's not me, you can tell, but you've seen those guys when they're pumping iron. They pump as much as they can, and then they kind of stop just pause for a second and if they've gone as far as they can their muscles are burning that's the same way you study and you press a little more and i'm going to tell you it's very profitable because god will always honor that that's interesting this is the same as for that that guy as as far as exercising the getting the benefits out it's spiritually the same for us we practice. I'd like to share about a man named Robert McShay. He died when he was only 30 years old. He was, a, again, a, a pastor of a church. His gravestone reads as follows. Died in his 30th year of age, the seventh year of his ministry, walking closely with God. Example for the believers in the world in conversation in love and spirit and faith and purity. He ceased not day and night to labor and watch for souls. McShay once said, my people's greatest need, catch this, is my personal holiness. The man died when he was 30 years old, but yet affected so many people. McShay once said again, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. These are humbling words they ought to lead pastors and all believers to spur one another on to live a life of love and holiness. Paul commands is simple. 
Discipline yourself for godliness. It's not self-generated works of righteousness because it's all Christ. The mystery of godliness. When you're in awe of Him, you recognize Him. When you recognize He indwells your heart, He compels you to do what's right. The value of this exercise is incredible. The benefits, well, you know, of exercise, physical exercise, it's, it's temporal. It's, but the spiritual exercise, it is eternal. It is for now. It is for eternity. Some people put all their effort in the, in the physical right now, and they put nothing in the eternal. You will not carry that into eternity with you. Only what you do for Christ. The training for godliness produces unlimiting benefits. You want to see the glory. Train yourself in the word of God. It has benefit for the present, as the scripture says, and for the life to come. Look at verse 10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially the believers. Now, he's, first of all, he's not saying that all men are saved. But Jesus Christ died for every man in this world. He initiated, they simply respond. But it's the believers that experience the real blessing. He's the Savior of the world. But not everyone will receive what he has done. But for us, the mission is important to understand The mission here is as we pursue godliness is life-changing. It is eternal. It will bless you beyond anything that you could ever comprehend. Let me read one last illustration. Our all-American hero, Mickey Mantle, became a new creation as he approached his death. Mickey died at age 63 But his final moments were not marred by the trademark of his fouled mouth, his falling down drunk behavior. One writer described the new Mickey Mantle. In those days, the last days, the weeks, even as his body was breaking down, Mickey Mantle had acquired a quietly strength, a dignity he did not know he possessed. He faced his own death with strength that became a new kind of hero. A new strength and dignity did not come from Mickey Mantle himself, but from the Lord Jesus Christ, who forgave Mickey's sins and gave him the free gift of eternal life. I like Psalm 143.10. It's not on on the screen. It says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on every level ground. In the end, this is the only thing that you will take is a life with Christ.